thank you so much, and thank you for coming out on this rainy afternoon. But hey, we can spend time together uh, learning and talking about important things. I've spent my entire career on a quest, a quest concerning how to be a faithful interpreter. It's not enough just to have a commitment to be that, but to pursue it and discover what does it take to be a faithful interpreter. And of course, the more controversial the issue, the more important it is to have clearly in our minds what that requires. So, for me, any discussion of this has to begin with biblical authority. We have to try to understand what authority is and how it works. This will be brief, but it's an important foundation for what we do. Biblical authority works with the premise that we can be faithful interpreters and that we need to be faithful interpreters. Because if we're not, we end up doing our own thing, having our own thoughts, instead of trying to think God's thoughts after him. And so how do we go about doing this? First of all, we recognize that God's purposes are carried out through human instruments, human communicators. We call them the authors of scripture. Authorship's a difficult issue in the ancient world since they really didn't have them. At any rate, these communicators of scripture, God uses them as instruments for this communication. So what happens is, God has purposes, but he carries them out through human writers. And that means that God's authority is vested in those authors. And if we want to get God's message, we have to go through them. It may well be, of course it must be, that God has far more message than what he gave to an author. But we have no way of getting that except through these authors. So it's too negative a thing to say we're stuck. But in one sense, that's, that's how it is. This is how it has to happen. And that poses certain obstacles for us to overcome. We find out then that the Bible, though it is certainly written for us, is not written to us. We're reading someone else's mail. It's written to them in a particular context and time. So it's not written to us. Now you kind of know that because even the most basic Bible reader knows that they're reading a translation. And if you're reading a translation, that means it was originally in another language, which is not your language, and therefore it wasn't written to you, else it would have been written in your language. Okay, so it's not in your language. And furthermore, it's not embedded in your culture. It's in an ancient culture that goes along with an ancient language. So it is not to us. It doesn't make adjustments to us or to any other audience throughout time and history. It's to an Israelite audience. But yet, it's for us. So the message transcends the culture, even though it's culture-bound. 
that means that we have to try to immerse ourselves in that ancient world. We need to try to understand what I call their cultural river. Now, I'm going to spend a slide or two talking about this cultural river idea because it's just pretty important for trying to be faithful interpreters. What's this cultural river thing all about? Well, we can start by thinking about our own cultural river. And as we describe that, we can come to understand the concepts. When we think of our cultural river, think of all of the ways of thinking that not only are popular or familiar, but that are fundamental to our Western culture in America in the 21st century. I'm throwing up a couple things on the screen that will remind you of some of these. Uh, we talk about things like freedom and rights. Uh, we also talk about things like democracy and capitalism. We talk about things like the expanding universe or natural laws. We talk about a social network and we talk, right? All of these things are part of our cultural river. Now, the thing is, some of those things in our cultural river we might not like very much. Uh, for instance, maybe uh, you've on occasion decided that you really don't want to be trapped in a consumerism and decided we're going to do something about it. Yeah, how'd that go? I mean, you know, we resisted in certain ways, but the fact is we're in a consumerist culture and it's very difficult to escape it. So there are aspects of our cultural river that we may resist. We might even feel strongly enough that we'll go thrashing upstream against the current, but that doesn't change the fact that we are indeed in this cultural river and there's no changing that. And so we understand things through our cultural river. It's our grid, it's our filter. It's the way we think. Again, regardless of whether we like it or not. Now, the tricky part is that our cultural river is different from other cultural rivers that have existed throughout history. You look at medieval France, or you look at Byzantine Rome, or you look at Stone Age Borneo, right? I mean, any place you'd look, you'd find very, very different elements. And it's very difficult to understand someone else's cultural river. We deal with that at Wheaton all the time. I have one class where I have a Chinese man, a man from Chile, a man from Palestine, and a woman. That's my class, those four. Wow, I mean, cultural river everywhere. So we, we understand this issue. What it also means is that when God had the Bible written and it was written to someone in their language, in their culture, it was also written to their cultural river, not ours. Not only was it not written to our cultural river, it does not anticipate our cultural river. Now, certainly God could have done it differently if he wanted to. Somehow he could have built in all kinds of advanced or different uh, information that would speak straight to us. 
but he didn't. The Bible is fully immersed in its cultural river. Now, what's the cultural river of the ancient world look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. When we look at the ancient cultural river, we find all sorts of different currents. And they're ones that we don't understand very well. Some of them we understand better than others. Some of them we've come to understand as we've been able to study the ancient world. And some of them we're still largely clueless about. But it's their cultural river. And the biblical text is written into this cultural river. Not ours. Now, you're probably a little bit disturbed by imagining how this is distancing the biblical text from you. We don't like it. It doesn't feel comfortable. It feels like you're taking away my Bible. And it's not my intention to do that, but we have to be realistic about how we go about getting the information that God has put in the Bible because it is supposed to be for us. And so we've got a challenge in front of us. If we want to be faithful interpreters, it means we want to connect with the authority of the text and the authority of the text is vested in the author which means that it's bound into that cultural river. And we've got to get to that river. Now, sometimes, as we try to get to that river, we'll say we can't do it. We can't recover enough of the culture. We can't think the way they do. Does that leave us with nothing? Not at all if we only go so far as to recognize that we need to push our cultural river off to the side, that we can't just reach our cultural river in, if we only do that much, that's a lot. Because at least it opens us to thinking in terms other than those aspects of our cultural river. We like to think that we can just open the Bible and let it wash over us, to read it just as it is. Why can't we just do that? Well, lots of you who grew up reading the Bible grew up reading the Bible that way, without even thinking about an ancient context. Why can't we do that? Well... <laughs> that means that you're basically deciding to read it through your cultural river, which is not the author's cultural river and is not what the author is thinking and therefore has no authority and therefore doesn't lead to faithful interpretation. Wow. Wow. Okay. If we read it through our grid, we risk imposing something foreign on the text. And that's why I say that reading instinctively or intuitively is not reliable. You see why? 
if we read intuitively, we read it from our culture or whatever, from our presuppositions. We shape our questions and answers. And every time we try to read the Bible in light of science, we're running this kind of risk because we're asking questions from our cultural river and trying to derive answers from another cultural river which did not anticipate us or our questions, nor did it try to frame answers for our cultural river. See, if you went to the steps, and at one point it sounds logical enough to say, yes, but God's bigger than that. And God can put things there that the Israelites didn't understand, wasn't their cultural river, but that it's there kind of for us to discover. That, that has a good sound to it. We like that, that possibility. Think about the logic of it. Does that mean he put stuff in there for the cultural river of medieval France, of Byzantine Rome, of Stone Age Borneo? Of, uh, did, he, did he bury things in there for each of those cultural rivers, and especially since lots of those cultural rivers were thinking in ways that we have discarded? Did he put truth in there for medieval France that we no longer think is truth? See how complicated it gets? If we want authority, we've got to go to the author. We could say the author is God, but God chose to put that authority in those human authors, and we've got to go to them. Submitting to authority means holding ourselves accountable. That's why we can't just read it as it is with our familiar default grid. Because then there's no accountability. We can more or less say anything we want. Well, the Spirit told me this. I'm not at all denying the ability of the Spirit to work. But the Spirit does not give us interpretation. The Spirit helps us apply what the message is. The Spirit doesn't enlighten us as to what the Hebrew means, what the ancient culture was like. The Spirit doesn't do that. We are responsible to be faithful interpreters. Then those interpretations are supposed to work into our lives, help us be transformed to the people we need to be. That's the Spirit's role. So you can't just say, I'm just going to open the Bible and let the Spirit tells me what it means. It's not the Spirit's job. Some people say they want to take the text literally. It's a, it's a tricky sort of assertion to make. And I would claim that you cannot take the text more literally than by reading it according to what the ancient any other reading is not going to be any worthwhile to us. Okay, It's the author who has the authority. It's interesting to me that lots of people who talk about reading the Bible literally are reading English Bibles. Does a literal reading of English Bible help us any? Somebody's already interpreted that to translate it, and translation is an imperfect science. To read an English text literally doesn't really get us where we need to go. Hmm. So 
we want to read the text seriously, trying to faithfully understand what it is that the author was communicating as God's spokesperson. So, the Bible in the ancient Near East. How do we approach all of this? First of all, there are some scholars today who try to persuade you that the Old Testament is indebted to the ancient Near East. They borrowed this piece of literature, that piece of literature, kind of put it through a round of the washing machine, cleaned it up, made it a little more Yahwistic and all of this, and, and that it's really an indebtedness that, in the end, takes away the inspired, authoritative nature of that text. I'm not interested in that. It's not indebtedness that we're talking about. It's embeddedness. The ancient world, that's where the Israelites are. They live there. They are embedded in that ancient world. Today, somebody might say, eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die. And they probably, in many cases, don't realize that they're quoting the philosopher Epicurus. Because they've never read Epicurus. And they really don't even know anything about him. But see, what happens is then they're not quoting Epicurus, well, they kind of are indirectly, but Epicurus has soaked into our cultural river. And they're just pulling something out of the cultural river because they're embedded in the cultural river. They don't realize that they are indebted to Epicurus. Okay, The cultural river carries lots of stuff in it, and we draw from it all the time. So the biblical world, the Israelites, are embedded in the ancient world. God did not kind of create the new language and a new culture out of whole cloth. That is the Israelites. The Israelites are part of the ancient world. Abram came out of Ur of the Chaldees. Amorite, Hittite, Aramean, whatever it is, Bible notes several times, you come out of that world. Okay, and likewise, Hebrew comes out of that world. It's not heaven's language that somehow got transubstantiated into Israelites. It is a language of the ancient world. So we can't really impose the ancient world on the Bible because it's already there. That'd be like saying that you impose Hebrew on the biblical text. How, how can you impose Hebrew on the text? It's written in Hebrew. So we're just trying to get back to what the text is. So ancient Near Eastern texts, and by the way, there's over a million of them. We've got loads of ancient Near Eastern texts. Ancient Near Eastern texts can prompt us to think thoughts that are not our cultural river, but are their cultural river. Ancient Near Eastern texts give us access to the cultural river of the ancient world. And in the same way, then, it provides windows so that we can glimpse that world and start to try to think the way that they did. Now, of course, talking about today, Genesis 1 and 2, are extended examples of this very thing. But to give you just a brief one to keep you keep you focusing on this. You know, when we think about the Tower of Babel, for centuries and centuries and centuries, people talked about the Tower of Babel as builders in their pride trying to build a tower so that they could ascend to heaven. 
throw down God or do something, rebel against him, whatever. Once we discovered the ancient Near East, we found out something very interesting. Those towers, now we know what they are. They're ziggurats. And ziggurats are not built to get up to God. They're built so that God can come down. Without the ancient Near East, we read that text wrong for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. The ancient Near East corrected and gave us access to that world, helped us to see that text differently, and it changes us. Okay? Faithful interpretation. That's what we're about. Now, the ancient Near East was discovered when tablets began to be dug up by archaeologists back in the middle 1800s, about the era of the Civil War. Um, so it's only been that recently that we've started to have access. But of course, it took a long time. The languages had to be deciphered. Then texts had to be translated. Then texts had to be interpreted. And then build syntheses. So it's taken, yeah, over 150 years material that is dug out of the ground to actually be accessible for us to read the Bible better. So it's been a process. Uh, but now, in just the last generation or so, this is available for interpretation. For a long time, when I did my doctoral work, for instance, I think that's the Jurassic period, um, when I did my doctoral work, um, to get these texts, you had to go to obscure journals, usually not written in English, and dig them out. Sometimes all you had was a, um, the text in front of you, not a translation, and I had to learn to translate it myself. And it was really a, a very difficult process to get access to the text. But we're way past that, that point. These things are all more available, more accessible. Still, if you as a non-professional wanted to go and try to find some of these texts, only the most familiar ones would be easily accessible to you. Lots of the other stuff still buried deep in journals. But what started to happen is that we've begun to produce tools to help you get access to the ideas, even if you don't have access to the original text in, in translation or whatever. So for instance, there's a book that I just worked on called the Cultural Background Study Bible. Zondervan published it, NIV or NKJV, um, and it gives all background notes. So basically, all the study notes are acquainting you with the cultural river, whether it's history or geography or archaeology, manners and customs, ancient literature, ways people thought and believed. So there are study Bibles out there now that give you this information. So it's a little easier because you can get access. Okay. So we better get to Genesis 1 and 2. That's what we're here for. So I had to do that kind of introduction so you knew what we were doing. Because now we want to read Genesis 1 and 2 in their cultural river. We want to resist pushing on it the questions that are our modern questions, our science questions. Now, what's the Bible say about evolution? Nothing. That's, that's not that cultural river. It was not anticipated. It was not spoken to. What does the Bible tell me about stem cell research or climate change? Nothing. Okay, we cannot push our cultural river onto the Bible. 
Now, those are still things that we really like to, to think about deeply, biblically, godly, spiritually, theologically. But we're not going to be able to grab a proof text. We're not going to be able to push that question on the text and draw out an answer. It's a little more roundabout than that. Okay? So let's get at it some with Genesis 1 and 2. So my proposed thesis, you have to start with text analysis. It's where I always start. We've got to look at the text carefully. Because lots of times we've even translated the text, not let alone interpreted it, even translated it already with our cultural river putting some pressure on our translation. Okay, we can't let that happen. Okay, so text analysis. So, when we open our Bibles and we open up to Genesis chapter 1, and we're reading about day one, and we read that, so God called the, the light day and the darkness he called night. And we just read right by it, because we've read this 123 times, and that's just in the last year, and it's very familiar to us, and we don't even stop to think about it. We think least about those passages which are most familiar, and that's not always a good thing. Okay, so we read that, and we skip right by it, and we never stop to ask ourselves a very basic question. That is, why didn't God call light light? What do you mean he called the light day? They're not the same thing. Day is not the same as light, and light is not the same as day. And certainly, if you're thinking in terms of physics, it's the same. I mean, we don't open the text and say, particle or wave theory. Come on. I mean, obviously, the Bible's not going to talk about such things. But why does he name the light day? Well, that's because, of course, in the ancient world, as is logical, they associated light with the day. But what is it that God's really creating here? The thing he's creating is the thing that he names. Because naming in the ancient world is an act of creation. When you name something, you have made it to exist. So it's important to say, what is it that God is naming? That'll tell you what the focus of the day is. And of course, we know exactly how that goes down. He names day and night. On day one, God creates day and night. Light is just kind of the means of getting there. And it's not light per se like we would think in physics. What is day relative to light? Day is a period of light. So God called the period of light day. That makes sense. You move back to verse 4, and it says God separated the light and the darkness. Well, that's a problem. From a physics standpoint, you can't separate them. They're not together, and one's the absence of the other, and that won't work at all. But to distinguish the period of light and a period of darkness, that's what he's doing. Because then he calls the period of light day and the period of darkness night. So he's distinguishing them. Remember, at the beginning, it was all darkness. And so then we move back to, day, to uh, verse 3, and it says, God said, let there be a period of light. There's darkness. Let there be a period of light. 
and God distinguished them between periods of light and periods of darkness. And the period of light he called day and the period of darkness he called night. So, on day one, God created day and night, which is a way of talking about God creating something that we know well. On day one, God created the basis for time, alternating periods of day and night, light and darkness. Now, I, I'm not the first one to notice that, and I had recognized that fact for many years as I was teaching. But it was one particular year when I was sitting there right in the middle of class lecturing about this passage and about this very issue that I raised a question which I don't think had been raised quite in my mind before or this observation. As I said to the students, time is not a thing. It's not a material object. That, that's not a controversial statement. But that was kind of the first time that I thought about that. Because we usually assume, in our cultural river, we usually assume that God is creating material objects. Indeed, that that's what creation is. Because science, in our cultural river, is all about materiality and material objects. And therefore, when we think create, we think objects. So it was quite a revelation in my mind to say, wait, day one, this is creating, but it's not an object. Huh. Stopped right there in the middle of the class. I said something profound. Huh. What's up with that? Huh, it's always profound, isn't it? Huh. What's up? And that leads to the next very critical question. What kind of creation account is this? Because we can recognize that there can be a different sort of creation account than the kind that we would have in our cultural river. There are lots of different ways you can talk about creation. And we can't assume that they would have thought the same way we did in our cultural world. This is the kind of question then that it opens up for us. What kind of creation account is it? Now you can see that as we push our cultural river off to the side, I can't assume material object creation account. I can't assume it. Maybe it'll end up being that, but I can't assume it. Push that to the side. Now I've got an empty table. Let's start trying to figure out what kind it is. Just to push ours to the side is progress. Everybody with me? Okay. So, if we're going to find out what kind of creation account this is, we better take a look at the Hebrew verb for create. Have we translated it correctly? Have we understood it correctly, even if we have translated it correctly? Think about in English, even, even in English. 
we'll talk about someone creating a curriculum, creating a committee, creating a masterpiece, creating havoc. You see, those all use the word create, but they all involve different sorts of activity. So when we talk about this Hebrew verb create, what sort of activity is involved? It's not the question that we necessarily would have ever asked ourselves before. But now we want to know. Inquiring minds need to know what, what kind of activity is this bara activity. Well, so we want to take a look at the use of this verb in Hebrew. That's the way we do it. See, the Israelites left us lots of books. They're in our Bible. But, you know, look as much as you will. You won't find a dictionary. They didn't leave us a dictionary of ancient Hebrew. So we have to figure out what words mean. And we do that the way people always figure out what words mean, happily enough, and that is through usage. That's how it is in our world. We figure out what words mean by their usage. And sometimes usage changes, and so meaning changes. Okay? So, well, so we have to figure out how it's used. So we start taking a look at it. So this verb bara has about 50 occurrences. That's nice. You know, that gives us a good set to work with. And we find out that it only ever takes God as its subject. Interesting. So it's an activity that kind of only God does. That's worth paying attention to. But that still doesn't tell you what kind of activity it is. So to figure out what kind of activity it is, it's not the subject that matters. It's the direct object. God created what? Okay? And so we want to look at all of those to find out what categories they fit in. Are they objects? Are they something else? Okay? That's what we want to try to figure out. So we take a look at it. It takes a wide variety of direct objects, and there's just a, a sample list of some of the things that are the direct objects of the verb create. And I picked these out particularly because they show us very clearly that we're not necessarily dealing with material things. I mean, you might say Jerusalem is material. That is, it's got a wall and houses and things like that. But when it says God created Jerusalem, it's not talking about him building the wall. Okay, that's not a material act. And certainly when you get to things like purity and praise, you know, create in me a clean heart, O God, that's not material. So time after time after time, we discover that this verb create is not talking about a material manufacturing process. Wow, that's different from our cultural river, because we kind of always assume that that's what it is. Creation is to bring something into existence. When we think of something that didn't exist and now exists, we think of material, because we define existence in our cultural river we define existence in material terms, right? This music stand, it exists. I can touch it. I can see it. I can make it even make a noise. It exists. 
That's how we think about it in our world. But what if another culture had a different idea about existence? Now, this is really getting wild and crazy, isn't it? But it happens. Let's take a look. We have to start then by looking at the before picture. If God is going to create heaven and earth in chapter 1, the seven days, God's going to create heaven and earth, okay? What does the before picture look like? If God's creation of heaven and earth is going to be a material source, you expect the story to start without materials. And then God brings material into existence, creates, and you get our universe. Again, we would think, what other way could you think? <laughs> Welcome to the ancient world. There are other ways. Because when you look at how the biblical account starts, now the earth, verse 2 tells us, the, the earth, where'd that come from? See, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's not a verse where God did anything. That's a verse that tells you what the whole chapter is about. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Let me tell you how he did it. Okay, that's verse 1. So, the beginning of the story is verse 2. Now, the earth, whoa, it already has the earth there. The earth was, and it describes it, formless and empty. We'll get to that in a minute. Formless and empty. And darkness is on the surface of the deep. The deep? Where'd that come from? So, you can see that the biblical account is starting with some of the material players already on the stage. It's like the lights come up and some of the cast is already standing there doing stuff. Hmm. What's that mean? If, if this isn't an account of material creation, what else could it be? What other definition of existence could you possibly have? Okay, so the starting point is not lacking matter. The starting point is lacking order. That's what those terms formless and empty refer to. In fact, darkness and sea are elements of non-order in the ancient world. They're not evil. This pre-ordering scenario. It's like when you move into a new place, right? Uh, apartment, condo, house, whatever, and you bring in all your boxes, and there, there it is. Non-order. Your life is in boxes. Nothing set up the way it needs to be in order to work, to function in your, in your house. You've got to unpack the boxes, and you bring order to your apartment or your home by unpacking the boxes, and you create order where there was non-order. That's more the picture of what we have in this text. The cosmos is non-order. And so God is going to create by bringing order because in the ancient world, something does not exist until it is given a role and a function in an ordered system. 
So tohu, the word that translates formless, when it's used in the Bible, describes something that is lacking purpose, lacking function. It's non-ordered. Nothing is done. Nothing's working. In Egypt, they actually have a description, the non-existent. And the non-existent is used to refer to the desert, to the ocean, the cosmic waters. For the Egyptians, those do not exist. Welcome to a different cultural river. They define existence differently. And if create means to bring something into existence, then they're going to understand creation differently. And the word creation is still the right one. It's just the concept of existence is different. We could have never figured this out on our own. We get this information as we read the ancient Near Eastern texts. And those texts lead us to look at the biblical text more carefully because you'll see that I did not derive this idea about bara from the ancient text. I derived it from the biblical text from paying more attention to it and understanding options as they exist in the ancient world. So, as we continue to think of the proposed thesis, what does this creating order have to do with? You can see that that changes a lot about what is being affirmed, communicated. Remember, <laughs> we, when we are trying to be interpreters, we want to understand the claims of the text. That's what carries authority. What claims is the text making? If we're misrepresenting those claims, then we're not being faithful interpreters. And we have to think again. What are the claims the text is making? If their idea of creation has to do more with order than with material, we need to try to think through that and see what we get. So, in this ancient focus on order, okay, existence is defined by having a function, a role and a purpose in an ordered system. Okay? That's summarizing what we've said. Not by having a material structure. So when God keeps saying it's good, it's good, it's good, he's not talking about the material, he's talking about the order. That is, it's working the way that it should. The word good here is not the word for perfect. And it's not a moral category. This is a morally perfect world. It is a order category. It is optimal order that has been achieved. Of course, later on in, verse, in chapter 2, he says it's not good for man to be alone. Okay, Order has not yet been achieved. Okay, so even there we have that focus. So Genesis 1, I would suggest, provides an account of functional origins or about the, the origins of the ordered cosmos. So Genesis 1 is about God bringing order into the midst of non-order. That is the creative that exists throughout the ancient world. You see it everywhere in your literature. 
at that point, we really can't ask what object God created on each day because it's not about creating objects. Naming, separating are all the ways that order is established. Okay, let me give you an example. We've got a room in our house. It was built to be a dining room. That's very clear. It's clear by the, its proximity to the kitchen, by the fact that it has a chair rail like you would in a dining room, the way the wallpaper is. This was supposed to be a dining room. Chandelier, whole works, okay? Certain aspects that show it was designed to be a dining room. We didn't need a dining room. Uh, eating kitchen's big enough for us uh, to do everything that we need to do. So we said, that's a wasted room. So we said, we are going to make that a den. And so we put a futon in it and put the computer in it and, and decorated it as a den. Used it as a den. Called it a den. We created a den. That has to do with ordering and function, not what it was materially constructed to be. See the difference between them. Naming, separating. In this sense, what we find in Genesis 1 is not much an account of cosmic origins the way that we would think about it scientifically. It's an account of cosmic identity. What is this place? That's an important question, and it's one that science doesn't always answer for us because they're so interested in the material origins part. But even once you get that whole process of the Big Bang and expanding universe and 13.8 billion years, and you still get to the end of all of that science and you say, yes, 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 but what is this place? And that's the question the Bible's answering. Cosmic identity, not cosmic origins. So, to try to understand this cosmic identity, I want to draw the distinction between building a house and making a house a home. They're both acts of creation, house and home. So, we can talk about a house. Um, in our modern natural river, that's sort of how we think about things construction process, walls, floors, ceilings, foundation, roof, plumbing, air conditioning, right? The house, the material house. Well, you can build a house, it's all done. General contractors packed up and gone away, cleaned up, everything's done, there it is. If it stands empty, it's not a home. And all the things are ready to work, and some of them do, the Roof keeps out the rain, but it doesn't keep it off anybody's head. The foundation holds it up, so it doesn't collapse, but it wouldn't collapse on anyone. But then someone comes and makes that house a home. And now the house is functioning as a home, which is what it was designed to do. And the plumbing, now somebody's there to actually turn on the faucet. And somebody's there to turn on the light switches. And so all of those things built into the house now are part of how it is functioning as a home. And you move in and you make it your home by the way that you order it, arrange it, set it up, call a dining room a den. Okay, so building a house, creation as a house story 
is what we do in our modern culture. When we think about creation from a scientific viewpoint, we think of it as a house story. God building the house, the mechanics, the physical material structures. And that's what science can explore. So science provides that plot for that house story. And the house is what you live in. It's where you make your home. But then how about home? Home is how they would talk about the cosmos in the ancient cultural river. Not a house. The cosmos is a home. And creation, as they would tell it, what they believe are the most important perspectives on creation, that's a home story. How this cosmos became home. And in this sense, it's not science that provides the plot. It's theology that provides the plot. Home is where your story comes to life. I got that out of a home insurance commercial somewhere, but it made sense. I mean, it works. Okay. Is where your story comes to life. So we use a house to make a home. House functions as a home, but making the home is a different act than making the house. And in the ancient world and in the Bible, it's the home story that carries more significance. Of course they believe that God built the house. In one sense, it's the home that's important. The operation is more important than the material stuff. Now, we can understand that a little bit. For instance, some of you have your laptops or pads or pods or all the kinds of things you use, right? And probably not too often, like never, you ask the question, I wonder what polymers went into making this screen and the casing. What chemical polymers? Maybe there's a chemist here. Okay, fine. You're different. Okay. Most people ask that question. That's the material question. That's the house. What's the housing for your computer? We're not interested in that. We want to know about operating systems and apps. Right? We, that's the stuff we want. We want to understand memory and how it works. So we get this. We know the difference. There's a difference between the housing and the operations. In the ancient world, they were much more interested in operations. Now, remember, they are not anticipating our world. So they are not going to answer the material question. Just because we are interested, they're going to answer the questions that are pertinent to their cultural river. So which is the most important story? Well, it depends who you ask, isn't it? But if we want to understand the Bible, we have to understand what they think is the most important story. Moving along then in the first thesis, let's talk about exactly whose home is this. If this is talking about the identity, cosmic identity, then you want to know whose home it is. Okay? And really, there's two answers to this. And we're going to explore them. 
it's funny, when we read through the seven-day account, we get to day seven, and we don't know what to do with it. Because when we're reading creation accounts as material, as objects, we get to day seven, and we say, oh, there's nothing being created here. What's this doing here? And so we want to know why would God need rest? What's up with that? God doesn't need sleep or downtime. Okay, and what in the world does that have to do with creation anyway? And so we get baffled and confused by day seven, so much so that it's fairly common for people to talk about the six days of creation. Wow, change to the text. It talks about seven days. And in fact, we're going to find out that if we make it six, we're missing In the ancient world, God's resting temple. See, this is a piece of information from the ancient world, which everybody back there knew, and none of us know. We read about God resting, and we immediately think of inactivity, disengagement. We think of it in our English terms. But all through the ancient world and in the Bible, God rests. And that is not inactivity, and that is not disengagement. God rests in his temple, and temples are built for gods to rest in, and that is not just something passive. Temples are the command center of the cosmos. When the god takes up his seat, his residence in the temple, he rests on a throne where he rules. That's way different from how we normally think. In the Bible, when God gives rest, think about it. God tells the Israelites he's going to give them rest on every side. That doesn't mean naps or leisure time. Security, safety, in the rule of God. He tells David, I've given you rest from all your enemies. When there's none of those problems, you can live life. You can engage in life without all of the wild cards, with all the problems. And so God brings rest to his people. When God himself rests in the temple, he has taken up his rule. He is done ordering. He's got it all ordered the way he wants it. And so now he sits down to rule. It's like when you have the first hundred days for the president. He spent 100 days getting his cabinet all in order, setting up his administration, getting everything set up, right? Ordering. And when that's all done, now he sits at the desk of the Oval Office ready to run the country. That's the concept of rest. You've completed the ordering, and now you're ready to live. You've emptied the boxes, unpacked them, set up your house. Now you're ready to live in it. That's rest. God ceases his ordering to take command. So here we have it in Psalm 132. Let us go to his dwelling place. You can see temple there, right? His footstool, that's the ark. Lord, come to your resting place. You see the temple is the resting place. You and the ark of your might, for the Lord has chosen Zion, desired it for his dwelling. This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit. Mm-hmm. Throne. This is the Bible, folks. 
It's clear enough. God's rest is God's rule. Now it's starting to make sense. So God ordered the entire cosmos for him to rule over it. People are the climax of the six days. I say that because as God sets up each stage, he doesn't order it to meet his own needs. He has no needs. He orders it to meet their needs. Okay, so the cosmos operates for them. Uh, remember day four, sun, moon, and stars. For signs, seasons, days, and years. Signs, seasons, days, and years don't mean anything to rocks or stars or rock stars. Oh, wait, never mind. Rocks or stars or trees, it means something to people. God doesn't need signs, seasons, days, or years. That's people. It's set up for people. But rest is the main goal of creation. And so God takes up his residence in this world. That's what its identity is. Its cosmic identity, and it is for people to live here and for God to live in the midst of people. This is theology, not science. And that's what God creating is all about bringing order into existence so that this world does what he purposes it to do. <coughs> God has a vision statement for the cosmos. God has a mission statement for humanity. And these texts Open that up to us. It's not science. And if we think that somehow it's dictating science to us, we've misunderstood the cultural river idea. Resting expresses control over an ordered system. It's engagement, not disengagement. The rest God gives is not the opposite of activity. It resolves unrest. So this is a text of cosmic identity. It's a temple text. Has anybody in the ancient world, the minute you mention God resting, they think temple, because that's where God rests. So Genesis 1, the seven days here, never mention a temple. But God rests. Bingo. We don't know that. They all knew that. So this is, this is a deep reality not a, of a scientific nature, not even of a historical nature, though that's not to say it didn't happen, but it's a metaphysical reality. So when we think about the seven days, see, for lots of people, this involves then the question of the age of the earth. Seven days, the age of the earth. How long are the days? Are they day ages? Are they 24-hour days? so that we can tell a scientific question, how old is the earth? Now, the word day here suggests that it should be a 24-hour period. I agree with that. The question, though, is what's happening 
in these 24-hour periods? Is it something material? If it's not, then the length of the days has nothing to do with the age of the earth because the age of the earth is a material scientific question. Okay? So discussion often concerns the age of the earth, but if we think in terms of temple building, God rests, it's a temple. If we think in terms of temple building, okay, think about Solomon. Solomon spends seven years building the temple. What then? When he's finished, there it stands, all done. Is it a temple? It's ready to be a temple. But it's not a temple until God comes in. A temple has to have God's presence in there. If God hasn't come in yet, it's not a temple. It's just a building, prepared to be a temple, ready to be a temple, but not a temple. So with Solomon then, when it's completed, it's not a temple yet. How does it transition from a building to a temple? A dedication ceremony, an inauguration ceremony, which takes seven days. Inauguration ceremonies for temples, seven days. That's not to build the building. That's not the material phase, so to speak. That's the dedication, the inauguration, to recognize the mission statement, to understand the identity of what's going on. You can see that the text is talking about something far different than the questions we tend to raise when we have science on our minds. If the seven days is like a temple inauguration, then objects are not in those seven days. And therefore, this doesn't have anything to do with the age of the earth. The seven days has nothing to do with the age of the earth, regardless of how long you think they might be or not be. If the materials are not being manufactured in those days, then age of the earth is not a discussion on the table. The ancient world wouldn't have cared about the age of the earth, and the biblical text is not affirming anything about the age of the earth. That's our cultural river talking, not theirs. So vision statement. I need to keep moving on here. It's 3.05. So now we need to move to the second part. Uh, that part uh, is all in my book, Lost World of Genesis 1. That's over there at the table, and that has that element in it. This next part is Lost World of Adam and Eve, also over at the table, and we'll deal with some of the things that we're going to do now as we move to chapter 2 of Genesis and talk about. We'll have time for questions at the end. We're going to try to wrap up by 3.30, so we have plenty of time for questions. Okay. So that just gives you an idea of where we're going. Okay, so when we talk about Genesis 2 and 3, again, we've got certain questions that we need to raise. First of all, a question concerns this Adam fellow. Okay, now Adam is a Hebrew word. 
Adam is a Hebrew word. It occurs 34 times in Genesis 1 through 5. Whoops. And these are not Adam and Eve. Eve is also a Hebrew word, as is Cain, as is Abel. These, these are Hebrew words. Therefore, it cannot possibly be their historical names. I'm inclined to think they are real people in a real past, but these are not their names because the names are Hebrew. And Hebrew did not exist as a language until after the time of Moses. That means these names are given to them by Israelites. They're not names that they called each other. Adam wouldn't have called Eve Eve, and Eve wouldn't have called Adam Adam. Honey and sweetie, do you think? Nah, probably not. So we have to already understand that something important is going on. Okay, so they're given by Israelites, suited to their role, and sometimes they occur without a definite article. English definite article is the, as, as you know. Okay, so. Sometimes they are without the definite article. Five times it then suggests a personal name. But they're all kind of late in this section, chapters 4 and 5. Uh, other times as humanity generically, God created humankind, male and female, right? It's just, just generic. Most of the occurrences in chapters 2 and 3 are with the definite article. If it has a definite article, it cannot be a personal name. Hebrew never puts definite articles on personal names. Okay, so when it refers to him as Ha-Adam, Ha is a definite article in Hebrew. Ha-Adam, you can't translate it Adam. It wouldn't have a definite article on it. Okay, it's the same as English in that way. You know, we don't refer to each other with the on front of our name. You know, it would be really insulting if I were called the John, you know, something without menzines in that. That just is very, okay? But, but so we don't do that. Well, there's the Donald, but never mind, okay? Um, so we don't usually do that, and Hebrew doesn't either. Okay, so with a definite article, 20. And that seems, seems, and I have to say this because it's interpretive, seems to refer to an archetypal figure. Now, we're going to have to unpack that word archetypal. I understand the difficulty. So we'll do that. Okay? So before we get to that, we have to talk about what the role of Genesis 2 with relationship to Genesis 1. I'm going to go through this rather quickly. Um, this phrase that I've got up there is Genesis 2-4. Uh, this is the account of the heavens and the earth. Uh, this is a literary introduction. It occurs, um, it's used 11 times through the book of Genesis, although other times it's not heavens and earth. It might be a person's name, Terah or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. Okay, so, this, so these are the divisions of the text. And so the question would be, if we've entered a new section of the text starting in 2.4, how does this section relate to the previous section? Okay, we've usually thought that Genesis 2 with Adam and Eve is a recapitulation of day six. That this is giving us more information about what took place on day six, right? That's probably how most of you have always read the text. That's not a slam dunk. And we have to ask the question, 
how does the Adam and Eve story relate to day six? Now, if it's recapitulation, then we would expect to see that kind of pattern in other places. Here's the list of the other uh, occurrences, okay, the other ten. And in each one, I've indicated what the relationship is between what comes before and what comes after. In several places, you can see I use the word recursive. Recursive would be when they follow the genealogy of Esau, then they come back and pick up Jacob's story. That's recursive. It comes back in time, but it doesn't tell the same story again. It's not recapitulation telling the same story again. It's just recursion, coming back to kind of pick up the line uh, to tell a different story. Okay, so we have a couple places where it's recursion. You're dealing with brothers. Okay, so that's only with brothers. Otherwise, it's always sequel. Sequel, wow. That means that Genesis 2 would come sometime after Genesis, the six days, seven days account. This would be later. Remember, in Genesis 1, it never suggests that there are only two humans created. God created humanity of male and female varieties. Population in Genesis 1. Never suggests there are only two. Never picks out Adam and Eve. That's only Genesis 2. So none of these are recapitulative, so we should assume that flat out. You'd have to prove it because there are other options. If it's a sequel, people in Genesis 1 are not necessarily Adam and Eve. Wow. Didn't see that one coming. The second account then does not need to fit into day six, which is problematic. Because day six, of course, I mean, in Genesis 2, you get all the naming of the animals. I mean, there's all kinds of things going on, which is really tough to squeeze into today. Furthermore, it gives you some explanation of some of the other things that show up pretty quickly. For instance, if there's a population in Genesis 1, and if later on Adam and Eve are part of a population, then we don't have the problem of where Cain put his wife in chapter 4, which was a problem. I mean, the sister thing never worked for me. I don't know about you, but wow, really? And when Cain says, now everybody who finds me will kill me, who is he talking about? Come on, Mom, Dad, stop, right? I mean, who's he talking about? Because they're going to kill him. And then he builds a city. You can't build a city for yourself. That's a man cave. I don't know the Hebrew word for that. But at any rate, the, so all these, these passages make us think there's a population around here. Now, if that's true, I mean, just to consider it on, as a working hypothesis, arguable, but if we think about it, then we have to ask the question, well, then what significance are Adam and Eve? If they're not the first and only, what are they? There's a good question, but we never would have thought to ask it before or to even try to answer it if we were only reading about human biological origins. Maybe we shouldn't be. Keep going. 
Okay, so archetypes, the word I've introduced here. Let's make sure we can unpack it. Okay, in an archetype, anything that's archetypal pertains to everyone in the category, not just to individuals. So anytime when we can detect something in the text where it's talking about all of humanity or all men or all women, that's archetypal, not uniquely, distinctively individual. So the names, Adam and Eve, okay, they, they have some archetypal aspect to them. Humanity, life, okay? Let's think about the, I've got an example. It was on the internet, I found it, and some guy was interviewing a bunch of second graders. And so he said to them, what are mothers made of? It was just intriguing to hear the kids give answers. And one little girl said, mothers are made of angel wings and clouds and dreams and a little bit of me. <laughs> now, even though she might be basing her answer somewhat on her own mother, um, the fact is that's not the question. The question is about mothers as a class. And she understood right away the archetypal nature of it and talked about the archetypal mother. What mothers are made of. So if this is archetypal, it's talking about something that has to do with human identity, just like she was talking about mother identity. After all, with her answer, you wouldn't go to biology, right? You'd know right away. You shouldn't be talking about biology. This is something about identity. Ah a different way of looking at the text in their cultural river instead of ours. In chapter 2, verse 7, the Bible says that the Lord God formed Ha'adam, archetypal humanity, and it does not say from the dust of the ground. The preposition is not there. The Lord God formed humanity, dust of the ground. Well, that's different. <laughs> Do you hear how that kind of has a very different feeling to it? Because then dust becomes not an ingredient. Dust becomes an identity feature. But we read the word formed and we think, Material, cultural river. Do we have a right to think that? Hmm, Zechariah 12.1. God forms, same verb, the human nephesh, the human person, the human identity. Identity is formed by God. Therefore, it is not simply a material act. See how translation can betray us? Hurts. So God forms identity. It doesn't talk about him forming the body. See, that's our question because we've decided that it must be scientific, biological, genetic. Hmm. We're imposing our cultural river 
on his text that has no intention of discussing those things. So the question is, is this what people really are? The question is not, what's the chemical composition of dust, and is that really what the human body is made of? Eh, wrong question. They don't deal with chemistry in the ancient world. Their periodic table is pretty small. Identity and image both pertain to the population. So dust, dust of the earth, is not just something about this guy that Israelites called Adam, that everybody else is different. Dust of the earth is all of us. And it's our identity, not our biological origins. Image of God is identity, human race. I would not talk about myself or any of you as the image of God. Humanity is the image of God. It's sort of like I wouldn't call myself or any of you the body of Christ. All of us are the body of Christ together. Not individually. We are not individually the body of Christ and we are not individually the image of God. Those are population, archetypal descriptors of who humanity is. Dust of the ground, image of God. Those are contrasting pictures because the image of God is grand and glorious. Dust of the earth is mundane and frail. And we're both. This is an account of human identity. So even Genesis 3, 16 through 19, I won't go into that. That's archetypes. Interestingly, and not surprisingly, <coughs> excuse me, ancient Near Eastern accounts of human being created are all archetypal, always. So this fits very well in the ancient cultural river. Okay, so formed from dust. Let's run through it quickly. Okay, it's not craftsmanship, it's not chemistry. They don't have chemistry. If it were craftsmanship, they would use clay, not dust. Dust cannot be shaped. This is not about shaping, building, sculpting. Thus, it would use clay. Okay, dust equals mortality. Genesis 3 makes that clear. Dust you are, to dust you shall return. This is the nature of humanity. Frail mortals. Now, that gets into questions about whether people were created immortal. Lots of people read Paul um, and they think, that, they think that Paul's saying that we were created immortal. Uh, but no, that can't be so because Paul's read his Bible and he knows precisely what it says and therefore he's not fooled because immortal people would need a tree of life. There's a tree of life in the garden. You know, if they already have immortality, they don't need that. You might as well make a tree of feet. Oh, already got some. You know, it's, it's life is something they don't have. So there's a tree of life in the garden available to them. Okay, but what happens when they sin, they lose access to the garden, they lose access to the tree of life, and therefore they're subject to death. Since they don't have the remedy, they don't have the antidote, they're subject to death because of sin. Oh yeah, that's what Paul says. Uh, 
this one? No, I guess not. Right? So that's what Paul says in Romans 5. Subject to death because of sin. Now, we also get it from, uh, from Psalm 103. For he knows how we are formed. That's the same verb for formed, by the way. He knows how we are formed. He knows that we are but dust. Notice, of course, the plural pronoun. We. Adam is not the only one who is dust of the earth. It's archetypal. We're all dust of the earth. Every human is formed Filling in the noun. Okay? Every human formed dust of the earth. That means that Paul identifies the same. First man of dust. All are from dust. Archetypal thing, right? Being formed from dust, therefore, does not describe material formation. It's not biology. It's not chemistry. It's not biochemistry. It's identity. Being formed from dust, therefore, would not preclude being born from a woman. You are all formed of dust, dust of the earth. Can't turn this off. Okay, so you are all formed from dust. Did I presume most of you are born from women? Right? <laughs> They're not mutually exclusive. And therefore, when the text is talking about dust of the earth, that's all of us. That's archetypal. That's not Adam distinctively. So he very easily could have been among a population and born of a woman. But dust of the earth. I just solved the belly button question for you, by the way. You're welcome. So again, this is not material origin. It is identity intended to communicate what all humans are, archetypal, not what Adam distinctively is. Okay, rib. Hmm. What do we do with that one? Adam doesn't think that Eve was made from his rib. Look at what he says. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Flesh of my flesh. That's not just a rib bone. So what we ought to do is say, let's take a look at all the places in the Old Testament where this word they translate rib, selah, where that word refers to anatomy and figure it out. We're done. This is the only place. It's the only place it refers to anatomy. It occurs lots of other times as an architectural term for one side of a pair. That suggests that God took one of Adam's sides, and he's only got two of them, cut in half, took one of Adam's sides and built woman from that side. Now you'd say, well, that's pretty dramatic surgery. Did you catch yourself? Why in the world would an ancient Israelite text be thinking of surgery? They don't even know what surgery is. Adam in a deep sleep. Oh, that's anesthesia. Really? Cultural river. <laughs> Excuse me, ma'am, your cultural river showing. Oh, you know, <laughs> okay, we have to be careful. Okay? So he's put in a deep sleep. This is not for anesthesia. What does this deep sleep refer to? We look at other places where it occurs, and at least several places 
I'm going out in this one too. Yeah, I don't know why. At least in several places, it refers to a visionary experience. Okay, Abraham in Genesis 15, uh, God puts him into a deep sleep, preparing him for a vision. Not something that's actually going to happen to him. So Adam in a deep sleep is being prepared for a vision. In that vision, he sees himself cut in half. He says, boy, I'm glad I'm dreaming. You know, He sees a vision of him cut in half, and the message of that vision has to do with human identity. Man and woman, same stuff. Philosophers would say ontologically equal in essence. Same stuff. And that's what the vision shows him. Now, what is all this about with man not being alone? God's not, God's not concerned that he might be lonely. This is not psychological. Oh, poor guy, he's all by himself, you know, needs companionship. That's not what this is talking about. It's not talking about reproduction, else he wouldn't have gone sending him naming the animals. What is it about? Well, it's about a task. Then All of this, it's not good for man to be alone, comes right after God assigns Adam his peculiar task. This is distinctive. Adam is told that he is to serve and keep in the garden, Genesis 2.15. We often read those as if they are agricultural work, okay, and that they're doing gardening stuff. But we've misunderstood the passage. The Garden of Eden is sacred space. God is there. It's a temple. And who works in a temple? Priests do. And what do priests do? <laughs> All through the Pentateuch, they serve and they keep. This is Adam and Eve preserving sacred space. So if we ask the question, what makes Adam and Eve unique, distinctive in this population? It's this. They are given a role in sacred space. They are to be priests. And it's both man and woman working alongside of one another as allies in that task. So Eve is to help Adam in a sacred task. As priests, they are representatives of that population. That's different from an archetypal representation, okay? because this does distinguish them out. And it's kind of like the way Israel is a kingdom of priests. So we shouldn't think of them as priests, meaning they're offering sacrifices. They're priests as representatives in sacred space, guarding and protecting the nature of sacred space. So if the details of forming apply to the archetypes, we have no information about the forming of individuals. We have nothing scientific or biological that's going on here. Archetypal identity does not negate the existence of the individual. That is, I still believe Adam and Eve are real people in a real past. It's just it gives us something different from the biological picture, where we have to imagine them being the first and only. The appropriate question then, is this what people really are? Dust, side, is this what they really are? Not, is this how biological origins really happened? Okay. 
So the message of identity. Human identity, okay, so we're told that God created people with mortal bodies. Relationship identity, the role of serving in sacred space, relating to God in that way. Ontological identity, we're different from the animals. None of the animals would suffice, okay? And gender identity, divided into male and female and would seek out family relationships. These are the identity features of Genesis chapter two. So how should we think? It's important to recognize what the biblical claims are and what they are not. We should accept those who may have differences of opinion. Again, all of the issues of evolution and age of the earth, scientific questions all come into this. And we have to recognize that different people might come with different ideas. Acceptance of science does not require rejection of the Bible or faith. If the Bible is not addressing, making claims about those scientific issues, then that's not the question on the table. Science can be accepted right alongside of the Bible, and it's very important theological, archetypal, identity-oriented affirmations. So when we think about Bible and science then, we should recognize that there's a difference between agency and mechanism. The Bible is interested in agency. God did it. God's the active one. It never talks about exactly what level of agency he might have. Was it direct? Was it indirect? Was it what? Tacit? Was it ultimate? What, what, what was his involvement? Doesn't say. God spoke and it happened. That's not a statement of mechanism. That's a statement of agency. God's the one who does it. And that's no matter how the science works out. Science is interested in mechanisms. That's what science wants to study. The Bible doesn't care about mechanisms. However it worked out is how it worked out. God did it. If evolution works out, God did it. If Big Bang works out, God did it. God did it. Agency. Mechanisms, that's for science to explore. The Bible doesn't say anything about mechanisms, and science cannot say anything about agency. Science can only talk about cause and effect in a natural system. They can't talk about agency, purpose, things like that. So in this case, the Bible and science are talking about different things, agency and mechanism. God has made us to be more than what he made us from. That's an important thing to recognize. Whether you think we came from some primordial soup or from some line of primates or uh, from some long process or straight from dust, God made us to be more. It's funny, some people say, well, don't tell me I'm from a primate. I said, so being from dirt is better? How's that work out for you? Okay, God's made us more than what he made us from. And that's, that was true of Israel. Um, and it's true of us as Christians. God made Israel more than the ethnic stock they were from. He called them to be his covenant people. God makes us more than what he called us from. Some of us, Paul says, were murderers and thieves and adulterers, but God changed you. He brought you up out of that. We are crucified with Christ, and we find new life in him. We are a new creation. 
We no longer live, but Christ lives in us. He has made us more than what he made us from. And we get so interested in talking about what he made us from in our cultural river that we forget what he made us into. Those who can be the people of God in his image, doing his work. And essential is unity, and non-essential is liberty, in all things charity. Unfortunately, that does not characterize this conversation in the church today. The positions we hold combine presuppositions, probabilities, preferences. Therefore, it's hard to talk about right or wrong. We can only talk about trying to be as faithful as we can be. Faithful interpretation can still lead people to different conclusions. The Bible's role is not to solve all our problems. It doesn't, it's not an answer book to give us the answers to all our scientific questions. It works in its cultural river, doing what God intends it to do. It reveals God's plans and purposes and how we can participate in them. And so as we seek to be faithful interpreters, we can see that the task before us is a little bit different from what we sometimes have understood it to be. Science and the Bible do not inherently conflict. And that even goes for something like evolutionary theory. There's a whole group of, of Christian scientists in a group called Biologos uh, who truly believe that evolutionary creation is the way to think, that God created through the evolutionary process. For them, evolution is not a godless system. And for any scientist who says that it's godless, it only means that that scientist has tried to take God out of it. Science cannot be godless. It can't say anything about God because it's dealing with mechanisms in the natural world. So there are plenty of people today who accept all of the basic conclusions of science and still are very strongly committed Christians. So I hope that helps us to get some new information on the table uh, to think about. Again, I'm not here as an evangelist to persuade you of my way of thinking. I'm here to put information on the table that some might find helpful. So uh, why don't we take a quick stand-up break, a stretch, if anybody has to quick run to the restroom, but we'll start the Q&A as soon as we can. <laughs>